0: <clears throat> nobody. 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 Nobody rage short stories. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy.
1: And I'm Megan.
0: And you're still you, and you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories.
1: Yay, so this is episode nine of season two of Nobody Read Short Stories. So this is our next to the last episode for this season. And tonight's story is going to run about 40 minutes. So here is uh, the wonderful Michelle Murphy reading Christine Sneed's Quality of Life.
2: Quality of Life by Christine Sneed. Mr. Folger called when he wanted to see her, and she obliged. For a while, it was all very matter-of-fact, like a visit to the library, the reasons for going unequivocal. Regret rarely played a part, and there was little premeditation as far as she could tell. Mr. Folger, when not with her, resided on a plane that did not intersect her own, and after her initial period of infatuation had worn off, she had ceased to hope that they might meet by chance. She had tried for a few weeks to find where he lived and worked, but he had remained unreachable. Her attempts at tracing him fruitless, and soon she began to feel ridiculous to have spent the effort searching for him. In their tremendous haystack of a city, he was smaller than a needle. In any case, she did not know what she had expected. Certainly not a marriage proposal, nor more permanent terms for their involvement. It seemed to her that primarily she had wanted acknowledgement of his steadfast desire for her, however infrequently this desire was manifested. At times she saw him twice a week, others twice a month. Even when she was dating another man, a man closer to her age who sought her out in earnest, publicly and otherwise, she answered Mr. Folger's phone calls with a yes that triggered the naming of a meeting place almost always a restaurant or hotel close to the center of the city, rarely the same one. Mr. Folger could not be his real name since she had found only two in the phone book and neither when she had called them had turned out to be him. One had died very recently. The dead man's brother had answered her call informing her tonelessly that there would not be a funeral service but donations could be sent to a Vietnam veterans charity. The other had spoken in a high-pitched voice that had possibly been female. No, this person replied when she asked to speak with Mr. Folger, adding that he was a tall man with salt and pepper hair. I'm not the one you're looking for, replied the unpleasant voice. Wrong number, miss. After a while, it became evident that Mr. Folger traveled frequently overseas and at times he had gifts for her that were not extravagant, though it was clear they had been chosen with care. One evening, he had given her a necklace with a heavy tiger's eye pendant. Another night, a book from the Louvre. He knew that she could draw. She had once shown him a charcoal sketch of a mournful looking elephant. She had meant to be funny, but he had admired the drawing and asked to see others. Aside from her sister and a few close friends, he was the first person who had shown more than a solicitous interest in her talent. He told her that he might want to buy some of her work, and when he saw how this surprised her, he suggested almost harshly that she take herself more seriously. She did not tell him that hers was a family long distrustful of artists, having been burdened with a legacy of schizophrenia on one side and depression on the other. Her accountant father and real estate agent mother had objected strenuously to her choice to study graphic design in college, their tacit worry that if she met with failure, she would end up in an institution as her great grandfather and his brother had, or else do herself in as had two poet aunts years before, darkly inspired by Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Whenever she heard these melodramatic stories told and retold by various family members over the years, Lindsay remained dismissive. Though in her private heart, she wondered if there truly was a family more fragile than most. Artists, more vulnerable to ruinous emotion, were thus more capable of inflicting harm. Since she had met Mr. Folger at a concert hall where she bartended during intermission, not long before she found a better job with a firm that designed theater programs, he had given her a tip much larger than the cost of his drink. He had also left his phone number, which had turned out to be an answering service. She had called him two weeks after meeting him, leaving her name and number, the concert hall's name as a reference, He had called back in less than three hours, inviting her to meet him for dinner that evening at an Italian restaurant on the top floor of a famously tall building. An old story, Mr. Folger had said, sipping his wine. The decrepit and shiftless enraptured by youthful beauty. You're hardly decrepit, she answered, barely suppressing a nervous laugh. He smiled, but perhaps I'm shiftless. I wouldn't know about that. And that is my good fortune. I know nothing at all about you. (laughs) She felt a shiver climb her spine. His dark eyes unnerved her. He was grander, his manner more daunting than the night they had met. He nodded, not replying. She fidgeted with her napkin, not looking at him for several seconds. When she met his gaze again, his expression was mild, as if he were patiently listening to someone tell a dull joke. Unable to match his silences during the hour and a half that they dined, she talked on and on about herself. He was possibly older than she had initially thought, somewhere in his late 50s instead of his late 40s. She did not want to think that he might already have reached 60. She was 26. Her maternal grandfather was 64 Mr. Folger seemed nothing like her grandfather, but still, she did not want to imagine him her grandfather's peer. She felt that, in a way, however, she deserved what she got. If she were allowing herself to call strange men, the circumstances of their meeting would presumably be strange as well. This tendency to court real danger was new, something she would have to monitor closely. The first night, he did not suggest they go to a hotel. He had instead taken her for a drink in a cavernous, smoky bar where a brass trio improvised discordant, rambling songs that would have impressed one of her former boyfriends, an unsuccessful pianist who violently detested his job as a receptionist at a popular radio station. Why do you live in this city? Mr. Folger asked. She smiled, inexplicably embarrassed. I went to college here. It's not a bad place to be. Will you stay forever? Forever? I doubt it. Why stay at all if you know eventually you'll leave? I wouldn't know where else to go right now. But at some point, you'll meet someone who will. Her face colored. I don't know. Maybe. Of course, Lindsay, of course. He smiled, swirling the red wine in his glass. We often rely on others to make our most important decisions. There's no reason to be ashamed of this. But I don't think I've done that. She realized it might be a lie, though at that moment she did not want him to know it. When they left the bar, he hailed two taxis, pressing money for her fare into her hand and brushing her cheek with his lips. She tried to refuse the money, but he turned abruptly away, disappearing into his taxi. He had given her too much. $50 for a $12 fare. It would become his habit to give her money. And after a month and a half of seeing him, she would stop trying to return it. His money indisputably made her life more easeful. Also the promise of his spontaneous reappearance enriched it. The phone call that arrived like a herald of what one day her life might be, though not necessarily with him, No more tiny apartments, nor the hopscotch from one debt payment to the next, nor the envy she often felt for those who wore impeccable clothes. In the end, the invincible protection of a powerful man's money and esteem, perhaps also his love, it would have been very easy for her to do much worse. Mr. Folger, whose first name was Reginald, though Lindsay rarely used it, had a small chicken pox scar below his right eye that she found fascinating in its allusion to his unknowable childhood. There was another scar on his chest, in the cleft between his pectorals. It looked as if he had been shot, the flesh puckered in a star-like pattern. But he had smiled with amusement when she had asked if a bullet might have made the scar. A bullet so close to his heart that hadn't killed him? No. No, he had burned himself many years ago, falling asleep with a cigarette in his hand, the pain of the fire against his bare chest causing a frenzied awakening. I was out of my head as I have rarely been in life, he said. It's never an ideal situation. A person who can avoid such situations is the one whom other people naturally flock to. And then of course, all manner of deceit and handshakes follow. Once she had said, why do you give me money? You don't have to. He had not liked the question. It's my desire to do so, was his curt reply. Their affair seemed as if it would go on indefinitely until one of them died or was otherwise spirited away. Never did he fail to take her to bed after the first night he had invited her to a hotel asking first if she wanted a view of the park, which she had, its lights distantly reassuring, as if to say she was incapable of making terrible choices and suffering their consequences. When she closed her eyes and felt her body's warmth blend with his, there was the scent of cinnamon and then of smoke, a smell she could not detect on him at any other time. From the start, it was breathtaking, in part for her shame, in part, For her astonishing pleasure he was far from youthful his body trim but slackening his chest and stomach inspiring a twinge of sadness since it was clear that they had once been very firm and strong how many women she wanted to ask how many have there been it thrilled her to think that perhaps he had slept with a hundred or more in 60 years A hundred was not so many. If he had started young, that was only two or three a year. And not particularly unnatural, since in all things except for sexual intimacy, variety was a virtue in human enterprise. Experience, the sampling of the unknown, was a state of grace and laudable industry. She told no one of her involvement with Mr. Folger. For long weeks, she wouldn't see him. And when at last he called, She was sometimes tempted to refuse his invitation, to say that she had other plans, which at times she did. The one night she had done this, however, he had not called again for 23 days. She had known him for several months and was seeing someone else she liked more than usual, but they did not yet have an understanding. Like Mr. Folger, the new lover, called her when he wanted to. He did not appear to feel beholden to her in any way. In her head, a running tally of the amount of money he had given her sometimes arrived without warning. After 11 months, $3,286, not including dinners, gifts, or hotel rooms, because of him, she had been able to pay off one of her credit cards and fly in her mother and sister for a long weekend, taking them to two plays. They had asked how she could afford it. A scratch-off lottery ticket, she had explained. Beginner's luck. She had never before spent money on such a foolish thing. When Mr. Folger called during their visit, she made an excuse to her mother and sister. A sick friend, I'll be gone for three hours, maybe four, I'm sorry about this. Late that evening on her way out of the hotel room, Mr. Folger had given her an inordinately thick envelope. She saw in the cab that he had filled it with singles and $5 bills. She felt the chilly heat of acute embarrassment, as if she were checking a payphone for stray nickels, passerbys laughing at her petty avarice. And when she returned to her apartment with a whisker burn, her sister noticed. A sick friend, she said knowingly. Wish I had a sick friend. I'd like you to move out of this city, said Mr. Folger after a year of amorous meetings. I'll make the arrangements. You could be closer to your family if you'd like. She stared at him. I don't want to move. I know someone who could give you a much better job if you allow me to make the plans for your relocation. I don't see what you have to lose. He regarded her. Unless there's someone here you'd miss too much. Most of my friends are here. You'd make new ones. He paused. You've said yourself that eventually you move away. There's no reason it couldn't be next month. She shook her head. No, thanks. Are you trying to get rid of me? Of course not. I'd see you just as often. I don't want to move right now. He sighed. Think about it for a little while. Your salary would double. She gazed at him in surprise. What would I be doing? The same thing you do here. I don't know if I should believe you. You can. Truthfully, you can. I'd arrange for a contract from your new employer. My God, she said, her stomach sickened. He smiled. It's not a bad suggestion, is it? Few would say you're making a foolish move. I haven't made up my mind yet. I'll check with you in the morning then. No one else she knew lived like this. She was half enamored and half appalled by a man she knew nothing about, other than the intimacies of his body, his style of lovemaking, few other superficial details. She knew his voice well enough that she recognized it the moment he spoke a syllable into the phone. She knew some of the foods he favored, salmon over beef tenderloin, quail over chicken. She had never seen him drive, did not know if he could. She thought it odd that he carried no keys. All that he removed from his pockets before taking off his tailored slacks were a billfold with only two credit cards, a money clip with several crisp bills, a few coins, a linen handkerchief, usually pale blue. His address was never on any of the items he carried. She had checked several times, risking this indecency while he used the bathroom. The only time she had ever seen him angry was on a night when a young thief had tried to steal her small beaded purse from the back of her chair in a quiet, exclusive restaurant. Mr. Folger had risen from the table, motioned to the maitre d', the thief then stopped at the door with Lindsay's purse hidden under his overcoat. You might know the expression, if thy hand offends, cut it off said Mr. Folger, fuming at the craven, inappropriately handsome thief outside the restaurant while they waited with a security guard for the police. She had wanted to leave, feeling the thief's fear and humiliation almost as her own. But Mr. Folger had made her stay with him until the police arrived. They'll need your testimony, he insisted, looking from her to the thief. I'm sure this isn't his first offense. He knew what he was doing, but obviously, so do I. Certain words she did not allow herself to consider. Concubine, whore, slut. Early on, she had come to think of the money she took from him as a gift. If he had been her father sending her money once a month because he worried about her well-being, few would have faulted her for keeping it. Mr. Fulger, as well appeared to worry about her well-being. His money was meant to make her happy, and specifically, there could be nothing wrong with this. He insisted. He was forceful, persuasive, right about so many of the observations he made while in her company. She would have continued to see him if he stopped paying her. At least she considered this to be true, since she could not imagine not seeing him. The sex was satisfying, often thrilling. The money was simply something extra. Many would have said, once their moralizing had been proven specious that she was very lucky. The new job was far away, on the coast farthest from where she currently lived. Instead of theater programs, she would be designing print ads for feature films. Her parents would only be a three hour drive if she agreed to accept Mr. Folger's offer. The night of the offer, she didn't sleep well. She regarded the contents of her studio apartment the new sofa, the sleek Chinese screen, the walnut hat stand that was purely ornamental. She sat in the window seat, looking down at the car streaming toward and away from the city center. She had grown to adore her small place, unsure if she could leave it so hastily, despite the promise of a doubled salary. She knew that Mr. Folger had not lied to her. His offer indisputably was valid. But she did not know that she would accept it until he called her in the morning at precisely eight o'clock. It seemed wrong to her, but she could not decide why. A terrifying thought arrived. Perhaps this was the first stage of madness. Though she also knew that always trying to be logical was equally mad. If a spectacular chance came along, it would be foolish not to take it. You should put in your notice today. The new office will expect you to be moved in and ready to start with them in four weeks. She felt panic rise up, her heart stammering. You you said a month. Give or take a few days. Four weeks is hardly less than a month. I suppose you're right, she said defeated. But it's so soon. Maybe, but not unmanageable. You'll be fine. After she hung up, she sat on her bed and sobbed. It was all so ridiculous. She had been handed an enviable new job and was now mourning her good fortune. She had previously thought herself pragmatic, prone to displays of cool appraisal, bracing practicality, sometimes at the expense of those who deserved better from her. The man she was seeing still had not declared himself to her, but when she told him the following evening that she would be moving across the country, he said that he did not want her to go. Was there any way you could just stay a little longer, maybe a few more months, he asked. She shook her head, wanting to explain, but unable to do it. He trusted her, even though they had never declared anything to each other. I could fly out there to visit, I suppose, he said. Of course, she said, that would be nice. You never told me you were looking for another job. I wasn't, she said, I came out of nowhere. Are you sure it's what you want? He murmured. I think it is, she said, smiling wanly. Her family was happy for her, pleased that she was moving closer to where she had grown up after so many years in a city they considered dangerous and also prone to abominable weather for half of the year, if not more. The new job sounded interesting and surely at some point she might even meet a few movie stars. Even so, they did not want her to be seduced by these actors' glamour and reckless lifestyles. She should have a good time, but keep her wits about her. Lindsay did not know who Mr. Folger knew at the firm that had hired her. She risked a few awkward inquiries shortly after she started, but was rewarded with blank stares. No one had heard of anyone named Mr. Folger. Was she sure it wasn't Felstead or Fulstein? She tried again, using only his first name. No, no Reginald, only a Ronald, a Gerald, too. Mr. Folger kept his word. He began calling not long after she had settled in, taking her out to new restaurants and chic hotels that had been built into verdant mountainsides. We could go to my new place instead sometime, she said during their third meeting at the new city. It's more spacious than my old apartment. I'm sure it is, he said, but it's your refuge, not mine. I won't mind sharing. He shook his head. I prefer hotels. Why? He gazed at her, his face more tired than usual. The possibilities. She was unhappy with his reply, with her new job, with her loneliness. Where's your wife? Surprise briefly transformed his features. I've told you that I'm divorced. She looked at him, doubtful. It's of no consequence, Lindsay. So I'm the only one? He took a long time to reply. In a way? Yes. Why did you make me move? I didn't make you do anything. You chose to move. You basically forced me. He shook his head, his expression tolerant. The position opened and I knew it'd be a good match for you. You couldn't disagree. I don't like it. Not yet. I want to go back, he sighed. You've been here for four weeks, hardly more than a blink of an eye when measured against your entire life. Her other lover soon flew out to see her, his delight with her new situation causing her to question her displeasure. You've got it made, he said. I'd move here tomorrow if I could find a setup like this one. Maybe you could. I could ask around. We'll see, he said. I'll do a little research first. But after he left, she did not hear from him for several days, and he admitted when they spoke that he had not started looking for something closer to her. Mr. Folger was also curiously silent. A month passed, and then another. Perhaps he had seen her with her lover during his visit and had felt jealous, angered to find her enjoying herself with a much younger man. Countless times she had wondered if she had ever passed by a store an apartment building where Mr. Folger stood looking out at her. It had always seemed possible that he might spy on her or else hire someone to do it for him, But of course she had never caught him or noticed anyone following her. She began to wake in the middle of the night, feeling keenly the absurdity of their relationship. It could not continue. When at last he called after 10 weeks of silence, she told him that she wanted everything between them to stop. No, he said simply. Why not? She said, because this requires almost nothing of you. "'I've never been stingy, you'd have to agree. "'But I don't want to do it anymore. "'It's become too upsetting.' "'You're being foolish,' he said, "'naming a hotel, giving her an address. "'Come out tonight, and I know you'll feel better.' "'In their room, he had two dozen pink roses waiting for her. "'He spent time on her body, more than usual. "'She started to cry, her face buried in his shoulder. "'Do you want more money?' He asked, drawing away. Would that make it easier? She shook her head, covering herself with his sheets. I have more than enough now. I doubt that, he murmured. We have to stop this before I go crazy. He sat up, his face hardened with displeasure. His thick gray hair stood up on one side of his head, giving him a comical air in spite of the scowl. She wiped roughly at her wet cheeks hoping her mascara hadn't run. Quality of life has greatly improved for you since we've met, he said. I don't know if I agree. He regarded her. Don't be melodramatic. Why can't I ever call you? Why did you wait two months to call me? I was away on an extended business trip. Doing what? He hesitated. I have never understood why people feel the need to know everything about each other. What would it change if I told you how I spend my time when I'm not with you? I wouldn't feel so much like I'm sleeping with a stranger. He shook his head. It's clear that you have no trouble enjoying it. I'm gonna say no the next time that you call. His expression was non-committal. We shall see. What do you do for a living? He sighed. I sell clothing. I own several factories. Some in Asia, some in Eastern Europe. That's all. Could I travel with you sometime? He gave her an unreadable look. I don't think so, Lindsay. That wouldn't work very well. You wouldn't enjoy yourself anyway. I'm always in meetings. After a time, things again became routine her former life and her regret at its loss receding. She went to work, she had dinner on occasion with a few people who were now her friends. She saw other friends from high school who lived in the city or occasionally visited it. Her lover on the other coast began to see someone else. She met a man who worked for a movie studio for whom she designed posters. Mr. Folger called every two or three weeks, their lovemaking predictably perversely satisfying. After 10 months, the man from the movie studio asked her to marry him. She said yes, and told Mr. Folger that she would have to stop seeing him because of her engagement. Again, he said no. She felt more desperate than she ever had with him. It has to stop, she said. I could pay you back everything you've given me. No, I'm not interested in a refund. I want to marry this man. Fine. I won't stop you. But you and I will still be seeing each other after your marriage. That's all I require. Please find someone else. He shook his head. You suit me perfectly. It wouldn't be as pleasurable with someone else. She left him that night thinking she would have to move request an unlisted phone number, dye her hair, change jobs, everything to get away from him. She would ask her fiancé if they could move far away and find new jobs. She would say she was tired of the traffic, the unhealthy air. They would do better to move up the coast, maybe work from home if possible. But when she began to explain to him why she wanted to make these changes, her fiancé suspected the story wasn't complete and connived the truth from her. When he learned that she had continued to sleep with Mr. Folger during their courtship, he broke off their engagement, explaining that it might be old-fashioned in their permissive times to be upset about such a thing, but he couldn't help his innate squeamishness when it came to infidelity. He marveled as well over her ability to be so calmly deceitful during their courtship. Had she loved him at all? He is simply one man among the many thousands more you'll meet, said Mr. Folger upon learning of the broken engagement, and I won't live forever, or perhaps the next man you fall for won't mind me so much. She made plans to leave the city, to move north to another state. Nothing else seemed possible. This, she recognized dimly, was hysteria. When the contents of her apartment were packed in boxes and ready to go on the moving truck, profound despair seized her. The moving men were sent away. She tossed one box from her second-story window, nearly missing a woman who walked by with a bag of groceries. I should call the police! yelled the woman, staring up at Lindsay from the sidewalk in fear and amazement. Half of her groceries now spilled on the ground next to the ruined box of cooking pots. It was an accident, cried Lindsay, trembling with horror. I'm so sorry, you could have killed me, yelled the woman angrier now. What's your fucking problem? He did not understand why she remained so unhappy She was not poor or dying prematurely from some vicious illness or imprisoned on wrongful charges or grievously disabled or the wife of an abusive husband in a place where religion made divorce impossible. Why was she wasting time feeling so sorry for herself? She had so much freedom, was accountable to him for so little, only a few hours a month. And it wasn't like he did anything but spoil her. He had a point of course. His logic, though chilling, remained unassailable. She would not be released, even if she threatened to harm one or both of them, even if what he did to her became rape. What was so terrible about her situation? He wanted to know. She remained young and beautiful. She had a good job, a nice home, friends, a loving family. Obviously, there were much worse things to lament if she would spend a moment or two considering the range of horrors just outside her usual frame of reference. She could, of course, be happy again. In the frankest analysis, it would remain, as always, her choice.
0: The end. Wow. That was so that good. Was you were oh, muted, fantastic. Megan. You were, Megan, you were speechless.
1: <laughs> well, I, I wasn't speechless, actually. I had a lot to say about it, but <laughs> Michelle, thank wonderful. you so much. Um, what a fantastic read. Uh um, I just oh, thank uh, you. You did, you just did, you brought the story to life. Um, oh, thank you. As, as, yeah, it was the reading of my dreams. Um, so, uh <laughs> If you would like to um, learn more about Michelle, you can visit her mm-hmm. on Instagram at the Michelle Murphy. Uh, Michelle also read um, an episode a couple of weeks ago for us for season two. That's the Weaver's Girl and the Weaver's Girl and the Witch's Boy. Uh, so check that out, and also check out one of Michelle's uh, own short stories in mm-hmm. season one. That is the Cleaner, and I'm sure that you will see Michelle. Uh, oh, ongoing in season two. So as Michelle, um, as always, Michelle, thank you so much for all of your lovely thank work. You. And thank for you. The, the care you take with this. Thank you. Bye. All right, um, what a fantastic read. So let's, let's crank cranky before we start talking.
0: Good idea. You all know how long- We'll how just ramp. on. There's a fruit fly trying to chase my face.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> so, oh my goodness, what a fantastic read. Like I'm so excited about so uh just how wonderful Michelle brought that that story to to life.
0: Yeah, I I had You know new... I
1: No, go ahead. You had new
0: Oh, I had new thoughts listening to it. Like uh... My first read of it, like when when we were just like reading through the short stories, like I just thought how messed up it is, that gray zone. But like today I was thinking more about the gray zone. I happened to be watching a, um, a interview from Oprah with Princess Fergie. I think that's her name, Princess Fergie. She mm-hmm. was just explaining, I, I guess I was intrigued because of The Crown with Princess Diana. So I was like, oh, I remember this this lady. So. She was just explaining that situation where you think something is good until you are there. So Oprah's like, well, try try to explain to us what the issue is. And she's like, I know it seems like this is like something that you want, like you're in a castle, you're getting all this jewelry, but there's just something right. And just listening to the story today, I was like, oh, it's that, it's, it's a gray zone because you can't even explain to anybody how unfortunate your situation is because there's no good way to do it. Like I remember um like reading through the comments for the princess Fergie thing. And a lot of people are like, what is her issue? You know, like what is her issue? And I'm like, I get it. I just read a short story. I understand this. So it just yeah, resonated really was- today.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the thing that I really love about this piece is that, you know, it's, it's, it's the idea that you're checking all these boxes, like mm-hmm. you're being given money, you're being spoiled. You're like anybody who looks at that would say like, Oh, this is a great situation, but you yourself know it's wrong and you feel it yet. Everyone is telling you
0: that you shouldn't feel it. And the, well, the thing-, thing too, because like she, it's almost like she's like gaslighting herself sort of because she's Absolutely. like, am I? Am I? Yes. That's
1: exactly what she's doing, and that's what she's been told to do, and that's what other people like. Even when she talks about her parents being so afraid of her, her having some sort of like artistic meltdown, I think in a way have sort of told her like this is what you. Wow. Well, that was my fast
0: fast, cranky, right?
1: Oh my goodness, this is we just have so much to say about this story. So um,
0: we're going to bring Christine on now.
1: Yeah, let's bring Christine on. Hey, thank you.
3: (laughs) I wanted to hear
1: what you had to say. I'm annoyed that Cranky interrupted you. (laughs) Oh, I'm always annoyed that Cranky interrupts me. Um, So before we get into more discussion, I do want to tell all of our wonderful listeners and viewers about how fantastic Christine is. So um, Christine Sneed is the author of the novels Paris He Said, Little Known Facts, and the short story collections, Portraits of a Few People I've Made Cry, I love that title by the way, and The Virginity of Famous Men, also a great title. Uh, Her works have been included in publications such as The Best American Short Stories, The O. Henry Prize Stories, The Southern Review, Plowshares, New York Times, and San Francisco Chronicle. She's been a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and received the Grace Paley Prize in Short Fiction. Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year Award, the Chicago Public Library's 21st Century Award, among many others. She currently lives in Pasadena, California and teaches for the MFA programs at Northwestern uh, Northwestern University and Regis University in Denver. Welcome, Christine. Oh my gosh, my mouth is dry from all those accolades. Um, <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, it's really.
3: Yeah been a lot of fun to hear michelle read and uh also just the story i read it quite a while ago so it's nice that it's still around and people still like it so it's that's always heartening for because you guys know you're writers too it's nice when people read your work and have something to say about it
0: christine i know that you usually read your piece yourself like did you get something from your own story like now that you have had distance with time and hearing somebody else read it was there something that you got from it
3: Well, one thing that I liked was how um, Michelle, especially sort of the end where Lindsay's really having a breakdown and the way that Michelle read the woman who was almost crushed by (laughs) the moving box. There's dark humor in that piece, but I think I often just think of it as sort of just the sad story about, like you were saying before, Jeremy, gaslighting. Yeah. She's not just... Mr. Folger doing it to Lindsay, but she herself is also not sure if she's losing it. So
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I liked I like the comedy that was, you know, there at times. And and Michelle's also obviously just a skilled reader. So it's a lot of fun to hear her interpret those characters.
1: Yeah, and I think that the comedy that does come out in the story just makes it that more real. You know, sometimes I read stories that are particularly dramatic and there's no comedy and it feels sort of lifeless because there's there's comedy in real life and so i i think those moments really help this story just be be more full of life um even though it is at its at its heart a sadder type of story (laughs) like i i just feel i still feel tense after like every time i read this story and every time i hear it read, I just, I just feel like this, you know, I just get tighter and tighter because I, I feel that anxiety having been in a situation like that, where not only I've been gaslighted, but have gaslighted myself. I just, the, the memory of that is very, is very fresh and very present in my everyday life. <laughs> so it uh, definitely resonated with me.
3: Well, I also think that, um, the fact that Mr. Folger always had some response and that he was just like, Well, I don't care if you're gonna get married, you can still see me. And I and I I mean I again I wrote it quite a while ago so I didn't remember I think initially when I started writing that story, I thought, oh, it's gonna be a happy story, May, December round. <laughs> it's it'll be just sort of a celebration of these two people and the age difference. And then it just immediately took a dark turn and I thought, well this is probably more logical. I mean, not that most people would go to the lengths Mr. Falter goes to to control Lindsay's life, but um, I just had more fun writing the, you know, as a dark as a darker story than as sort of a quirky fun comedy, which it might have been, but it just didn't turn out that way.
0: I love that it took on a life of its own. You know, that's really interesting. Was it was it a character that took on a life of its own, or just the feel that you're like, I, I just want to follow this feel?
3: I think it was the the mood, yeah, the, the tone. Mood. I just like yeah. right after I that first paragraph, I just thought, you know, this is not going to be funny in the way that some of my other stories might have more humor, or at least there's a, there's a lot more light in
1: them than this story is pretty dark. So, as you guys know, um,
0: yeah. yeah,
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I do I do think it has, like you mentioned, the the moment where. Mr. Folger's like, oh, yeah, we can still see each other after you're married. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, it has these kind of satirical elements to it that, you know, at first seemed kind of a little strange. And you're like, that's a little over the top. But at the same time, it's like, oh, wait, no, that's, you know, that's, he's normalized this behavior. You know, he, I've
0: he's- met people like that too. Like, people that, like, I've had people be like, no. And like, what what do you say to someone who is just so <laughs> like that, you know? Like they have that opinion and they're like, I don't know, they're like rocks, you know? It's like, true. I,
3: yeah, I actually use the metaphor, they're like a brick wall. Yes. I mean, you know, people you know who you can't change their minds or family members you argue with or whoever it is, whether it's about politics or something else. You're, you're just like, there's no door. It's just an
0: entire brick wall. There's no way in. Yep, and you, the empathetic person, are trying to find a way to, like, yeah. like put yourself <laughs> over that wall, but they're just not having it.
3: Right. Yeah. yeah, it's fun to write characters like that because there's just, like, I mean, you try not to, if, I mean, at least I don't ever want to be like that guy, and I don't want to know a lot of people like him or any people like him, if possible, but it's um, just fictionally, there's always got to be that flaw. There has to be some something like that that drives the story, because... If everyone was nice all the time, you wouldn't really have a story. There'd be no conflict. It's true.
0: It's true.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I that I really uh, resonated with in this story is um, sort of the way that the self-talk that Lindsay has, like the way that she justifies everything and talks herself into each one of the choices that she makes. Uh-huh. And it really made me think a lot about how... Um, as a as a woman, I just feel kind of conditioned to do that. Like it's my automatic thought when somebody tells me what's good for me to be like, oh yeah, okay. They know something that I don't know, and I have to sort of talk myself and remember my instinct and remember what you know to to ask myself how I feel about something before I take someone's uh, suggestion at heart. And I and I think that conditioning really is is to me more of. Is, is mr Folger is sort of the personification of that conditioning for me is is the way that the way that I read it um and it was just just really and I think that's why I had such a physical reaction to this story is because I I just resonated with it so much
3: you know I'm no, I I'm glad yeah I, I mean I don't want you to feel uncomfortable and stressed out but it's interesting because after the story came out best American short stories in 2008 a friend of mine said oh yeah I have my I have a my sister dated a cop and when she read this story, it just reminded her of that relationship. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I'm sorry for your sister. But it, I thought, yeah, the authoritarian personality that he has. Mm-hmm. And also I said this when we were doing the rehearsal on Thursday with Michelle, I I was, um, wait, now I just lost my train of thought. Oh, uh- I know. What Um, we always, I think not always, but often maybe women, especially, but not always men too, you rely on other people to make important decisions for you. So you just sort of put your agency in their hands and hope for the best. It's like when you know people who've gotten married and you're kind of like, that's not going to last. And you talk to them after the fact, they're getting a divorce. They're like, well, I knew it probably wouldn't go well, but. You guys are probably too young for that, but <laughs> but at some point, I hope. I mean, again, I don't. Want, I wish bad things on anyone, but just at some point, you know, you'll talk to the bride or the groom. Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to last, but I thought, why not? Maybe it'll, maybe it'll, it'll surprise me. So,
0: well, it you know, goes, we it goes, like it's it's not just in relationships. I think it's like you capture like a human human thing that happens where you have somebody older and seemingly wiser who has this confidence. And so you're like, it would feel so good to like, like let go of that burden of like making responsibilities and just handing it over. And like in your head, like every single time it just, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it feels like it would be good. But then when you give that over, you're like, oh, this, this is not good. <laughs> like, you know, it doesn't feel good.
3: Right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's like writing too, because you make a decision and you're like, this is not really a good idea. And then you do it anyway. And then later you're like, why did I waste two weeks doing that? And now I got to throw the whole thing out and start over.
1: Oh
2: my yeah. gosh.
1: Yes. Or you get a note that you know is wrong and you
3: spend
2: you know it
1: revising the you know story it. to, yeah. to meet that note. And then you're like, oh, why did <laughs> I do that? I knew that wasn't the way this story wanted to go. I've done that.
0: Christine, I'm very curious, um, once you finished this piece, if you remember, was there something that you learned from like finishing the piece? Was there something you got out of the story after you were done besides having a really brilliant story?
3: Thanks. You know, I, I don't, I think I just, like the fact that just sort of unspooled in a very organic way and then it only took me maybe five days to write it. I was working full-time at the school of the art institute in the uh, dean of students office and i would come home and work in the evenings on my own writing when i got home and i just felt like i mean as a writer i just sort of i think it was one of the earlier i'd been writing short stories for a while at that point but it was one that i just felt like i don't need to force stuff you know it's better if i just sort of trust my instincts. I don't use I don't usually outline short stories. I have done some outlining for the two novels. Well, actually not even for the first one, Little Known Facts, cuz that's more of like a novel that's written and some of the chapters are standalone and I publish them as short stories. So, but one thing I will say just t- tangentially to your question, when I wrote this story, I was sending it out to journals and it took me 4 years to publish it with a really great journal that I love called the New England Review. And I had gotten rejected from a bunch of other places. I think 17 journals had rejected it. And I had revised it and then I sent it on to the New England Review. They'd been considering some other work, so I didn't wanna keep bombarding them. But one thing that happened, like initially, right after I sent the story out, I got a phone call from an editor who was like, I really like the story. I have to give it to my co editor. We'll get back to you probably within six weeks. Well, I never heard from them again, and and I emailed a couple of times. I was like, "Do you guys? What are your? What's going on? Do you want? It, do you want the story?" And never heard back. So, three and a half years later, the New England Review took it after like fifteen other rejections. And but the thing was that early phone call from that editor, which rarely ever happens. I, I mean, I never, I just get emails now, of course. And that, in those days, you got, you know, you still got mail for the most part with your self-addressed stamp envelopes. But it was just that one editor who, again, I never heard from again, but it just was like, oh, there's something in the story clearly that mm. he responded to. But I literally was about to just give up on it after the New England Review took it. Because I, I just thought, well, whatever, I'm at four years, like how long should I be sending this out? Mm. And um then, you know, you just sort of eventually give up. But at the same time, I just thought, well, I know this isn't a bad story. And it was just one of those things where you realize sometimes like as editors, there's just thousands some of these journals get and they are in a bad mood one day and they throw out a bunch of stuff or they read like one paragraph or whatever it is, you know? So it's just something I always tell my students. I'm like, if you really believe in a story, you just have to keep going, you know, just keep sending it to journals. I mean, obviously, if you feel like it needs revision, do that too, but I just, you know, kept it persisting because of, in part because of that early encouragement, which again, resulted in a dead end, but it was nonetheless, you know, helpful and vindicating.
0: I love that that you're bringing this up. up. Oh, I'm I'm hearing reverberating. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. it's
1: it's such a fantastic point for, writers I think to to not only like persevere and to keep sending their work out but also to like trust in your work like you knew that story like you felt that that story was good you knew that there was something there and you enjoyed it and I think as writers we really need to trust that feeling that we Mm -hmm. have about our own work and say you know I know that there's something powerful in this because I feel it and trust that feeling that other people will feel it um so yeah. doing and, that and then then I got the phone call on a day in February of
3: 2008. I was about to go teach composition classes at DePaul University, where I was teaching at the time. And Heather, um, not Heather, sorry, Carolyn Keebler from the New England Review called me and said, "I have really, really good news." Salman Rushdie picture story for the 2008 Best American, and Heidi Pitler, the series editor, also the two of them always, you know, the guest editor and the series editor always talk about which, what stories they're going to include each year, but just like whoa you know i mean it was one of those things where as a story writer that's the best thing that could happen to you really oh absolutely (laughs) Um, amazing it was just i was just in a daze and i thought well i'm so glad i didn't give up on the story because four years of trying to publish it and then finally and it wasn't like i wasn't writing other stories in those four years but it's just like you know this like the hand of god comes down and touches you it's it's Just, yeah. just such, a, such a great thing.
0: I mean, you just prove it's not talent, just talent. Like, cause like this story is so good. Like, like I I read it, Megan read it, like this was a clear piece for us that we were gonna choose, like both of us from our ends. Thank but you. it's the resilience, you know, like your resilience to keep pushing. I, I, I think that, like, I hope there are writers that are listening to this right now, just like stick with it. Like if you believe in something, stick with it because you know, you you have to, like what you were saying, like you get a temperamental editor that like one sentence hits them the wrong way. It doesn't mean your piece is bad. It just means that you got to keep going. You got to keep moving it forward. That's amazing. I love it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of writers have stories like that if they've been doing it long enough. I mean, we always hear about these success stories where someone who's like 25 suddenly writes a bestseller and then yep. knows them. But that's that's like that's literally like winning the lottery. Most people do not have that experience as writers. But we hear about those stories so often. And I think that's dangerous, too, because a lot of young writers are like, oh, well, I just have to write a book and then I'm going to get it published. I'm like, maybe you need to write five books and then maybe you'll get one published. And it's not ever gonna be what you think. It's just never what you think it's gonna be, so.
0: You are so inspiring. You are so inspiring. I wish I could take your classes.
1: (laughs) I know, I I love this, like, when I've done a lot
3: of- I feel like I'm
0: gonna lift up into the air.
3: Well, I'm also clipping myself up. I mean, it's just you every day, if you're sending work out, you have to deal with rejection. It's just, I mean, I I don't have a lot of acceptances for stuff that I send out, even though I'm like, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm writing good stories. There's just a lot of people who are also doing it. And you're also, there's a limited number of spaces. And, you know, what were you going to say, Megan? I know you had your, I think I might have interrupted no. you. No.
1: Oh, I was. Oh, I was just gonna say that I've, um, I've worked with, you know, edited before and edited people's books and and helped new writers, you know, kind of get started, etc. Uh, throughout my life, and a, there a lot of times there is this mindset of like, oh, I'm just gonna sit down, write the great American novel, and mm-hmm. you know, then I'll be done. And everything I always try to tell them is like, like no, like you're gonna vomit <laughs> up something that's really awful. And then you're going to have to go back and you're going to have to revise it and revise it and revise it. And yes, there's going to be beautiful moments in there that you keep, but that's, that's the writing process. And when people ask me like, what is it like to be a writer? And I'm like anguish and, you know, self-loathing and then beautiful magic mixed in. And I, I don't think that I think a lot of times people just have this romantic, fantastic idea about what it means to be a writer and what it means to be really dedicated to your craft, and and so it's refreshing to hear someone like you speak of, speak about it in that way because that's my experience. What you're talking about is my experience as well. So it 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 makes me um, it makes me feel in good company. Oh,
3: good. Yeah, I I just think a lot of us, a lot of we feel alone a lot because we're often alone writing. So. I mean, there's Twitter, but that's a terrible distraction. And it's- <laughs> I remember, um, year it was probably like three or four, maybe even five years ago, there was a an article about how people who look at Facebook rank that as the second least happy activity that they engage in frequently. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm like, well, that makes sense because makes sense. we're just presenting idealized versions of ourselves so for the most part i mean obviously there are people who are compulsively thought broadcasting and like oh i my boyfriend just broke up with me and i you know i caught him with someone and it's all this embarrassing stuff that you wouldn't want to put on there but you know a lot of people just put like pictures from when we used to be able to travel by plane Mm -hmm. (laughs) safely um hawaii or whatever or they're meeting elton john or you know some exciting things that are happening so i i think it's just hard you have to black out all that stuff too. I, I can't really look at Twitter that often without feeling stressed because A, I'm not posting enough and mm-hmm. I'm not liking mm-hmm. enough and mm-hmm. I'm not retweeting mm-hmm. enough. I'm not clever enough or whatever it is. So it's-, it's-
0: Yeah, like you, you wanna put all of that effort into your writing. Like now authors have to put that effort kind of into social media yeah. too. Cause I feel that way with Instagram. I think Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, they're, they're all kind of awful you know, but at the same time, you have to kind of do them too, you know?
3: Yeah, they, I mean, especially if you're trying to um, make a name for yourself as a
0: mm-hmm.
3: as a writer or an actor or wh- whatever it is, or a photographer, you know, it's, you're told that you have to do that. I, I think there are exceptions, but it's, there aren't that many. <laughs> right. And usually it's people who've already become very successful, you know? Um, they're not going to be posting on Twitter because they don't need to. So. They don't have
0: to, yeah. Right,
3: or someone else does it for them, so, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, Christine, thank you so much for uh, letting us showcase your story on our show and for this beautiful conversation. Is there anything else that you would like to say about your story before we go?
3: Um, no, just thank you for, again, for reading it and liking it and putting it on your program, which is, I love short story podcasts. I'm so glad that you're doing this um, okay. with such joy. It's clear, so much joy. So, uh, and we'll just stay off Twitter
1: for a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yes. More short yeah. stories less Twitter.
0: <laughs> Christine, I'm going to want more short stories from you. I'm just saying.
3: Oh, I would be happy to. Um, yeah. Yeah, I have so many. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and um there's a new one that came out in the Journal Boulevard recently and that's a great journal. So if you guys aren't familiar with it, um they How do they how a- do
0: the listeners find it? Like how how do we find it if we're looking for it?
3: They you know? it's called Direct Sunlight and um okay. the story is in again Boulevard magazine. They're on Twitter. They've been around for quite a while. Um they used to publish a lot of Joyce Carol Oates stories. I don't know if they still publish her frequently or not, but um, you can get a digital version or a hard copy and I think their website has some of the uh, work from the new issue. Um, I've and had students from Northwestern who've had work in there too. It's a it's a great publication. You guys should submit your work to it too.
0: Um, we're I think Mark's writing it down now, but we're gonna make sure to have that link for people so that they can look for more short stories from you, Christine. Also, check her out on Amazon. I know that I'm gonna add your books to my my Amazon. <laughs> so. Thank you.
3: Yeah, I will um, just yes. down the road. I'll hope to see you guys again. And uh, when you guys are open again for submissions, do you you're going to post that on Twitter or send out a note to everyone?
0: We're actually open now. Uh,
3: oh, okay. On your website, I shared that link with people um, on Facebook. And oh, really? I think on Twitter. Yeah. So I'll tell my. I have a lot of friends who wrote short stories too. So I'll tell them. Christine oh, you, you, you so are much.
0: so awesome like like seriously I, <laughs> I I don't want you to leave like <laughs> obviously the listeners don't want to I'm either sure because else nobody's does. no they're still here they're still listening so um, and well,
1: uh, for our listeners if you want to learn more about Christine and her work uh, you can she has a wonderful website it's christine and that's christine s n e e d.com um so check her out. And um, Christine, please please keep us keep us updated on your your future work, and we want to be an advocate for you moving forward. So just stay in touch. Thank you. Yes, I will, and and rock on, and write on
3: too. <laughs> Thank,
1: Thank you so artist, much, dude. Christine
3: all. Thank you again. All right. Thank
0: you. Bye. I didn't want her to leave. I, I didn't want her to go. Oh my goodness! It's, that's
1: that's, and she so obviously loves short stories, which I which of course you know I very much appreciate. Um, so that's Speaking the of,
2: yes. Speaking
0: like of, submissions, like, hey, if you're still listening and you're a writer, we are looking for short stories. We've got a few, but we're looking for more. Um, like we're probably looking for your piece. Like we're looking for all genres, all kinds of people. So if you're like, I am an alien from outer space, there's no room story. for me. No, give us your story.
1: That's right. And we, we like, we like diversity in genres too. So yes. if you have, um. You know a romance if you have a cowboy story if you have um an alien story as jeremy mentioned like please send it our way we we um
0: megan wants a what, what is that called bodice ripper megan wants a bodice <laughs> ripper so if you're like oh my gosh i have a friend that like knows how to rip those bodices off yeah. <laughs> send us that send story. It,
1: send it our way. I mean, you know, we want good, good
0: bodice rippers. Yes, um, good, good. We obviously, discriminate just because it's a little sexy. So we want sexy. Yeah. We haven't had anything, have we? Have we had anything where you're like, ooh?
1: Um, not since season oh, one. You know, season one. Glenn.
0: Glen's was a little yeah, bit.
1: That was a little bit, a little bit fresh. Um. <laughs> So, but if you have a story, go to reads please, com. You'll find our submission button ascended our way. Uh, season three will be coming up in, in 2021. We're very excited. Um, thank you for everyone who has subscribed and like our YouTube channel. We're very, very yes. ecstatic to um, to let everybody know that we've reached 100
0: subscribers. We've reached 100. We We've did it.
1: We're actually so at the at new 100%. goal is a
0: million, and we're going to get the million in a week, right, Megan?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, a million subscribers in a week. I think our new goal is going to be 200, and we know that everybody out there who's listening can help us with that. So yes. if you like tonight's story, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Please leave us a comment. We'd love to hear what you you, are, our listeners are thinking about our stories. Um, so please let us know. And if you would rather listen to if you're listening to us on podcasts, you can find us on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere where you would normally uh, find your podcasts. Uh, the great thing about listening to us on the podcast is that you can just download it onto your phone and take us with you wherever you go. So if you find yourself you know, wanting something to listen to while you're doing your chores or waiting in line or driving down the road or whatever, um, we'll be right there waiting for you to entertain you we with one sure of our lovely stories. Yeah. Uh, social media.
0: Social media. Speaking yeah. of social media, Speaking we love social- it. No, we love talking to people though. So like we love Instagram and Twitter and Facebook because we like hearing from you. So if you have something to say, we're there. You can also, like Megan said, leave the comment below. And if you wanna find out more about us, we still have the same websites, surprise. So Megan has her website, meganamorrison.com. I told her that I have a prediction that next year is gonna be good for her. So you'll probably be getting a lot of good news from her. And I also have a website, jeremyraystories.com. Forgot it for a second. And every week you get a micro story That's from me. So <laughs> this is yes, the part every
1: Tuesday there, Jim. Uh, Jeremy, Jer- Believe it or not, Jeremy's holding up our NRSS podcast pillow. Boom, uh, boom, boom, it's boom, purple. NRSS. It's white. It's orange. It's And what everyone wants for the holidays. So if you haven't finished your your holiday shopping, please go to nobodyreadshortstories.com. You can find all of our merchandise. You can find those pillows. You can find socks, leggings, t-shirts, hoodies. If it's getting a little chilly in your area, warm up with some nobody read short stories hoodie and uh, put on some nobody read short stories socks and put your personals in a nobody read short stories fanny pack, because I know that's what you're dreaming of. So uh, we love
0: you all. Thank you for listening to us. And the last episode is next week. So excited about this piece. Like it's the feel good. Listen, this year has been rough for everyone, everyone. Like this piece I feel like has everything you need to feel good. Like, so put a pause on your Hallmark-, Hallmark channel episode and tune in for us. It's called The Dragon for Christmas. Like, seriously beautiful. Like I remember Megan and I talking afterward. And basically all we said was how beautiful was that just like
1: story yes it's very heartwarming so next week join us for a dragon for christmas um you know make yourself a cup of tea or a hot toddy put on your slippers snuggle in and we uh we will be here
0: bye everyone we love you
1: thank you everyone good night
0: no one
2: short stories anymore I Really don't know what they're written for Go write a short story and throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories anymore No one reads your story